Bible. It's one of the most influential books in human history. It explores the big questions of why we exist. It's inspired many people to do amazing things. And confused many others. And you've probably got one sitting around somewhere. So, what is the Bible actually? Well, the Bible is a small library of books that all emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. And in one sense, they were just like any other ancient civilization. But among them were a long line of individuals called prophets. And they viewed Israel's story as anything but ordinary. They saw it as a central part of what God was doing for all humanity. And these prophets were literary geniuses. Really? Yeah, they expertly crafted the Hebrew language to write epic narratives, very sophisticated poetry, they were masters of metaphor and storytelling, and they leveraged all of this to explore life's most complicated questions about death and life and the human struggle. So, there's a lot of different authors writing this book. Yeah, and these texts were produced over a thousand year period, starting with Israel's origins in Egypt, then leading up to their kingdom with their first temple but eventually they were conquered by the Babylonians who took them away into exile. Then, at a crucial moment in their history, many Israelites returned to their land. They built a second temple, they reformed their identity, and this is when the Jewish scriptures began to be formed into the shape that we have them today. Okay, the Jewish Bible. What's in it? Well, in Hebrew, it's called by an acronym, Tanakh. The T stands for Torah, sometimes called the Law. That's Israel's five-book foundation story. The N stands for Nevi'im, the Hebrew word for prophets. And this section consists of the historical books that tell Israel's story from the prophet's point of view. Then you get the poetic books of the prophets themselves. The K stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for writings. This is a diverse collection of poetic books, wisdom books, and more narrative. And the Jewish people believe that through all of these literary works, God speaks to his people. Now, there were other Jewish writings being produced during this Second Temple period as well. Yeah, a really diverse group of texts. And these two were highly valued in Jewish communities. And there was debate from ancient times about whether or not some of these should be considered part of their scriptures. So this is a lot of different writings over a long period of time. Why did they put them all together like this? Well, altogether, these texts tell an epic story about how God is working through these people to bring order and beauty out of the chaos of our world. And it all builds up to a hope for a new leader who would come and renew all creation. And then the Tanakh concludes, and this leader never comes. So it's an expertly crafted work, but it's missing an ending? That's exactly right. Now, a few centuries later, a Jewish prophet comes onto the scene named Jesus of Nazareth. He claimed he was carrying the Tanakh story forward. Yeah, so Jesus did a bunch of cool stuff was killed, but his followers claimed he was alive from the dead. Yeah, they said that Jesus was that long-awaited leader who would restore the world. And so his earliest followers, called apostles, they composed new literary works about the story of Jesus. They called these good news or the gospel. They formed an account called Acts about the spread of the Jesus movement outside of Israel. And then they circulated letters to different Jesus communities all around the ancient world. And they saw these writings as part of the scripture. Yeah, the apostles wrote all of this as the fulfillment of that epic story found in the Tanakh, and they were continuing the literary genius of the Jewish tradition. They also believed that God was speaking to his people through these texts alongside the scriptures of Israel. So that's the Old and New Testament, but what did the early Christians think of the other Second Temple literature? Well, different groups had different views about some of these books, but we know they read them and valued these texts because they passed them along with the Jewish scriptures. 
Okay, so we've got the Tanakh, the Jewish scriptures. We got these other Second Temple period works. Then the writing of the apostles about Jesus. And that's a lot of literature, so what's in my Bible? So the Christian movement has taken different forms over 2,000 years, and from the beginning, all Christians recognized the Tanakh and the New Testament as scripture. And for centuries, much of the Second Temple literature was read as part of the biblical tradition. The Catholic Church eventually made it official and called some of the books from this collection the Deuterocanonical books. Some Orthodox churches used even more books from this Second Temple literature. And then in the 1500s, during the Reformation, Protestant Christians wanted to go back to the oldest writings of the prophets and apostles, so they accepted only the Old and New Testaments. Okay, I think I got it. But... How does a collection of books produced over a thousand years by all these different authors tell one unified story? Yeah, that's the question we'll address in our next video. Okay, you just had a mini course on what's called canonicity. In other words, how did we get the Bible? And I'm hoping to move on, just like they had that bus, there's more to tell you. Uh, I want to move on and tell you, well, well, okay, so what is the Bible supposed to be to us and how do we use it? You know, why is it all here? So some of those other questions, and I'd like to pray that God would help us do that. Would you bow your head with me? Lord, we need to know more than just the human way that the Bible got here. We need to know what it means, because it's very clearly a supernatural book, and what it claims of itself. So I pray that as we open it up now, and as we look at it, you would help us understand what it is and why we use it in church. Help us understand why it should be in our life, what this should be to us, and what place it should take. I pray that for everybody here, Lord. Don't have to be a pastor or a Bible teacher to use the Bible. But in what way should it be used and how should we use it? That's what we need to know. So we're just humbling ourselves before you, asking that you teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Why is the Bible used? Why do we use it in church? Why, why do we need to have a Bible? What's so important about it? Why, why, why do we teach it in Sunday school to the kids? Why do I preach it every week when I preach? Why do I preach from the Bible? Why, why is it important for, for Bible verses to be maybe even memorized and thought about? What, why do we do this? Why would missionaries, people like from, from our families, go and decide to be missionaries to pro, bring the Bible to, to different lands, to different people, even people like my own sister that was in Bible translation with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Why would they do that, spend their whole life just helping other people get the Bible? Um, even being put in prison or, or persecuted. I don't know if you've ever read the stories of some of the people of the past, but there was a famous guy who was actually a scholar. His name was John Huss. John Huss was burned at the stake because he wouldn't stop handing Bibles out, trying to get the Bible into the common people's hands. John Wycliffe, somewhat the same. Have you, have you ever heard about the Gutenberg Press? The Gutenberg Press by Jonas Gutenberg was the first multiplication, you know, he could printing press that was ever made. And what did he print first? The Bible. Because he wanted to get the Bible into the hands of the common German language into, the, into people's hands. And there's people against him for that. Unbelievable, isn't it? Why, why are people so afraid of the Bible? Millions and millions of people, even back in Jesus' day, 
This, this is what the Roman government was afraid of. E even the ancient Jews didn't want these Christians promoting the Bible and getting the Bible around, especially New Testament language stuff. Nowadays, it's the communists, right? Communist China, communist Russia, they don't want the Bible there. Keep the Bible out of the hands of the common people. Why are they so afraid of the Bible? Even the radical Muslims, no, 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 no Bible, no Bible. We use the Koran, no Bible. You can't have a Bible. Why are people so afraid of the Bible? Why do Christians make such a big deal out of the Bible? What's the big deal of the Bible? Why is this such an important thing? And some people love it, some people hate it. Why? I know the answer to that question. The answer is, it's the fuel of the church. The Bible is the fuel the church runs upon. It's what we run on. It, it, without the Bible, you, you don't have anyone, anywhere to put your faith, something to settle on. And the Bible gives us something to sink our faith into. Remember we've been talking in this series about we, we came up with this idea that we saw throughout the New Testament that the Apostle Paul measured the church with three things, right? Do they have faith? Do they have hope? Do they have love? And we said, you know, faith is kind of like a stepladder. And one side of the stepladder is the solid side. That, that would be like God's Word. And then we said the other side with steps on it, that's like your will. And when your will meets God's word, like a stepladder, that's where faith is, like at the top of the stepladder. That's where faith is. It's when your will rests on God's word. Faith. And then we said hope. Hope is like an anchor, right? And we used an anchor and we tied it to the cross and said, because that's what you're hoping in, that because Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, you too will die and raise from the dead and be in glory with God. You, this is the hope you hold on to, right? For the future. Because hope is all about future. And then we said love is like what? Concrete. Because <laughs> we knew the synonym in the English language for love is really commitment. And what's more committed than setting concrete? Because <laughs> when something's set in concrete, it ain't going to move. That's it. It's concrete. It's like, yeah, so if faith is like a ladder, hope is like an anchor, love is like concrete, then what's the Bible like? I got it right here. Got another analogy for you. Another object lesson. The Bible is like food. Oop, I spilled some I spilled a strawberry. I might have to eat. No, I'll wait. I love strawberries. Anyway, it's like food. In fact, the scriptures teach this. Do you remember in one of the most dramatic stories in the New Testament, it's clearly taught. Have you ever read to the end of the Gospel of John? At the end of John, Jesus is talking with his disciples. He's going to die. They don't know it. He's trying to tell them, but he's going to go to the cross. Excuse me. This is, I'm sorry. He already gone to the cross. He'd risen from the dead. This is at the end of the book of John. He'd already gone to the cross, risen from the dead. But he's going to leave and ascend to heaven. Okay, right? So here's his final words. He turns to Peter and he says, Peter, because Peter's like, as we know, the head of the disciples. He says, Peter, do you love me? And what does Peter say? Lord, Lord, you know I love you. Almost like, why would you ask me that? Of course I love you. And then he turns to Peter and says, well, then Peter, feed my sheep. Okay. A few minutes later, we're not told how much longer. He turns to Peter again. Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. You know. 
you know this. I love you. Yes, I love you. Okay, Peter. What does he say? Feed my sheep second time. It's recorded that a few minutes later, he turns to Peter again. He says, Peter, uh, do you love me? Almost like, do you really love me? And Peter goes, Lord, he's like brokenhearted. Lord, you know I love you. And there's a lot of nuances in that, especially in the Greek language. But he's asking him a third time he loves me. And so a third time, he turns to Peter and says, feed my sheep. How come Peter didn't go, what do you mean, feed your sheep? What are you talking about? Because Peter knew what he meant. He knew absolutely what he meant. He knew that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and the devil was tempting him to not go along with the plan of God and not follow God's ways, what did he say to the devil? He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 from the Old Testament. Peter knew this passage. Every good Jew knows this passage. What does it say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's comparing the word of God with food. Man doesn't live by just bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is like the food of God. Like I put down in the idea of the whole sermon, the Bible is the fuel the church runs on. Or as I put down in point one, the Bible gives us the food of God. It's literally the food of God. There's another passage I'm sure Peter probably knew about. It's quite outstanding. It's in Ezekiel, you know, Ezekiel the prophet. And he's, Lord, what do you want me to tell the children of Israel? That's what a prophet does. Like he speaks for God, right? So what do you want me to tell him? He says, get a pen. Write it down. Write what I tell you. So he starts writing. Gets all done. Now what, Lord? He says, do you know this one? It's Ezekiel 3.3. I think it's the coolest thing. What do I do now, Lord? Eat it. So he told him, eat it. Eat it? I don't know if you've studied the prophets much. They do some pretty weird things. But he's going to eat the scroll. And he says, eat it and then go tell the children of God what you, what, what you wrote. It's, he's just giving that analogy again. He's trying to get it home to, to him. The people need the words from me like they need food. The Bible is the food of your soul. This is the whole message I'm trying to give you today. And you need it like you need food. That's why I said in point one, the Bible gives us the food of God. Look at Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. I'm going to read off the screen today. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Notice that word taste. Oh, just come and taste it, he said. And see the Lord is good. It's good. That would be like like me saying, hey, try this. Try this dessert, or try this donut, or, or try this apple, or try whatever I'm giving you, some food. And I say, oh, it's really, really good. You got to eat it. Come on, just try it. Just try it. It's really good. He's saying that about the Bible. Here, just try it. Just try it. This is really good. You're going to really like this. Eat it. Eat it. Just t- taste and see. The Lord is good. It's sweet. Powerful, isn't it? Um, he also has this passage I wanted to show you. It's in 1 Peter 2. Again, using the analogy of food, the Bible keeps using this over and over again, that the Word of God is like food. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's trying to encourage us here to take part in 
consuming, digesting, ingesting the Word of God. Why would this be important? 2 Timothy 3.16. Got to look at this one. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read this. We'll hit it on the screen. Oh, you know what? I skipped over something. I got to go back to that in a minute. But let's do this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You get that? All Scripture. So here's what the Bible says about itself. It's breathed out, or one uh, translation reads inspired. Inspired means it's breathed out by God. It actually comes from God. And that's, because, that's why it's profitable for teaching or for reproof or for correction or for training in righteousness. It's going to shape your life. Why is this? Because the Bible, do you know how phenomenal the scriptures are? The scriptures was written over a 1,500 year period of time. It took 1,500 years from the beginning to the ending of this book. 1,500 years to write it. 40 different authors, 40 different authors that spoke in three different languages and lived on three different continents. Not just countries, three different continents. And it all says the same thing. It all knits together. There's not these contradictions between... Uh, no, it's just unbelievable. This one scholar... A linguistic scholar said, I don't think people understand. He says, if he was going to give a visual aid, he says, I would put over on this side of the stage, I'd put the Bible. Then I'd go as far as I can on the other side of the stage, and I'd put all the other books ever written by mankind over there. And showing the gap between, is that phenomenal? None of them are written over a 1,500-year period of time. None of them are written by 40 different authors. In fact, you can't even get three different authors in the same time period, in the same continent, to agree about anything, really that much. Especially the controversial subjects of the Bible. It's absolutely unnatural. That's why people say, yeah, this is definitely God-breathed. This is definitely spiritual. This is definitely revelation from God because it's not human. And, the, and this scholar saying, this linguistic scholar saying, that's the difference. I want people to understand this book by its very existence is supernatural. That never happens. That never has happened. This is phenomenal. Proving by its existence alone. It's God. It's, it, it, it's like the prophet, well, what should I say? Yeah, write it down. How this happened? First Peter 1, 21 says it this way. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that? No prophecy was ever produced by man. No, this is not human, it's saying. That's what the Bible claims of itself. But men spoke from God as they were carried along carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it wasn't just the person. Th these words are not just people thinking it up or this was a good message or this was a nice word. No, it was something different than that. That's why they call it God-breathed or spiritual or revelation or divine inspiration because it was not human. It's spiritual. Yeah, we can go through the stuff we just did on canonicity that you saw in that little video, which was really cool. But it's more than that. And that, of course, if we had time, we'd turn on the next clip they got on that site and he'd say, that's what they're going to try and say. It's like, well, yeah, this existed, but did you hear how it got here? Did you, do you hear what the Bible says of itself even? It's more than human. It's supernatural. One thing that's interesting to me is uh, this, that first verse I quoted to you out of the book of Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
it hit me because I was reading something just the other day. I, I just came across this, and it's talking about the human tongue. Did you know your tongue has over, the one in your mouth right now, has over 10,000 taste buds on it? 10,000. Hey, if food is just fuel, why do you need all the taste buds? Why not just plug in the food, you bring it down like you're filling up the tank, right? Why do you have to have 10,000 taste buds? I remember reading one theologian, he says, well, it's like, I guess God wants you to taste stuff. He went on to say, this other scholar goes on to say, did you know your tongue? Two-thirds of the taste buds on your tongue taste sweetness? Really? I not only can taste things, salty or sweet or tangy or zesty, but I can taste the sweetness? Yeah. Why? He says, well, I guess God loves you. Wants you to enjoy it. Just like he can't make two birds the same. He can't make two flowers the same. They're all different. And the mountains and the rivers and the sky is like beautiful. Why? Because God wants you to taste and see that the Lord is good. And it's like he's saying that about the Bible. He's saying, you got to taste it. You got to get it. This is sweet stuff, man. This is the best. It's showing how badly we need it. And that really we want it. We need it so badly. God's word is actually sweet to the soul. You know, I've been in this Jesus walk for years now, over 40 plus years. I became a Christian when I was 18. And um, sometimes I'll meet an old friend from back home or somebody that became a Christian when I did or someone I knew years ago. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's kind of sad. And, and I bet you, if you walk with the Lord for a while, you know that exactly what I'm talking about. Or even if you've just gotten older like me, you meet someone you haven't seen for 20 or 30 years, and sometimes it's so blatantly obvious. I'm not kidding you, blatantly obvious. They haven't been feeding on the Word very well. You see it in their countenance. You can see that in their eyes. You can hear it in their words. His kind of a dullness kind of a sadness, kind of a depression. It's not there. The joy is lacking. The fruitfulness isn't there. You can hear it in their depressing words. There's a sadness. It's like, it really, they can't hide it, but they've been starving themselves. They're weak. They're wimpy. There's no, nothing solid to put their faith down. Why? They're starving to death. And like you would meet someone who's malnourished, you know, like, like those World War II people in a prison camp. Kind of, but then I've met the opposite. I've also seen people, you see them again 20, 30 years later, there's a sparkle in their eye, there's a countenance, a smile, even though they look definitely older and like me getting bald and gray hair. You, you, there's something to it. They're, man, they're alive, right? You can see it in them. You can hear it in their words. It's unbelievable. It's almost like they're younger than they are. It's like, wow, you've been feeding on the Word, haven't you? And sure enough, they have. They've been going to church. They've been reading their Bible. They stay. You can see, I'm telling you, this is true. Why? Because your soul is dying for this. The Word of God is the fuel. It's the food of the human heart, the human mind, the human emotions. 
And when someone's been feeding on it, yeah, it adjusts their thinking. Yeah, it adjusts their emotions. Yes, it changes their relationships. Yeah, you can see it on their countenance. I remember years ago, I had a, a professor who was a psychiatrist, Dr. Fr uh, Paul Meyer. Paul said, oh, you could tell so much about a person when they walk in the office just by looking at their face. He calls it their countenance. Their countenance will tell you volumes. And I'm just saying in personal experience, I see it. It has everything to do with their connection to the Bible. I don't mean that they just know a lot of it. I'm saying they use a lot of it. This is why the elders of our church years ago decided, you know what? We should like mandate that every ministry of our church, from little children's ministry all the way up to senior citizens, need to focus somehow on the Bible. Oh, they can use other books that help them and commentaries and things like that. Sure, that's great. But just so we get the Word into every ministry because without the Word... You got nothing. They're going to starve. Their faith isn't going to grow. Hey, you know what? This is why you shouldn't be afraid to talk to somebody else about the Bible. Even a non-Christian at work or somebody. You know, they don't even know it, but this is what they're starving for. This is what their head needs. This is what their heart's longing for. They're hungry for this. There's a guy in our church who used to be a, a postal worker. He's retired now. You ever heard the term go, going postal? You know what I mean? He said, man, the guy's in the post office. It was like a negative environment. Well, what did you do? He says, well, I, I would take little three by five cards and I'd write out the, or type out these notes out of the Bible for guys. A little psalm, a little proverb, a little thing. And I'd just hand it to guys for work. Like when we're putting our letters and filing stuff away to take into our car. He says, I, I just, and he said, hand it to him. He says, it went on like that for like a year and then I was going to quit. And the guys would go, no, no, don't quit. Man, I need this. They're not even a believer yet. But they're like, see, the human heart needs the Word of God. That's who we're made for. Don't be shy to tell people about the Lord, about Scripture. Say, oh, there's this one passage of Scripture. It means a lot to them. Let me, let me show you what it is. Or I could even quote it to you. They went, wow, the Bible, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Have you ever read the Bible? Get them to read it. Now, point two. The Bible gives us the nourishment only God can give us. In Hebrews chapter 4, 12, it kind of explains it. it. The Bible says, for the word of God is living, I underline that, and active. We're going to come back to that. Sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's really sharp. How sharp? Piercing to the division of soul and spirit. I remember having a psychiatrist, that one I mentioned, Paul Meyer, saying, you know, sometimes I'm trying to help somebody and I can't figure out, is, like a, is this a psychological or soulish problem or is this a spiritual problem they're having? And trying to figure, he says, the Word of God says it can figure that out. Of joints and of marrow, we'll get a, talk to a medical doctor about that, and some more insight there, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Bible can do all that? Yes. Why? Top point. Because it's living and it's active. Did you catch that? It's living and it's active. Which would mean every other book written by humanity is dead and inactive. It cannot do what a living, active book can do. The reason the Bible has such influence, the reason the Bible changes people's thoughts and intentions of their heart, the reason the Bible can change people emotionally and spiritually and intellectually in all kinds of ways and challenge your thinking and change your thinking and change your feelings and adjust your attitude. Why can the Bible do all this? Because it's not dead. It's alive. 
I remember Frank Minrith, a, a clinical psychiatrist who was a professor of mine, one time said, he, he just confessed to us students, he says, you know guys, I'll be honest with you, one of the reasons I'm in psychiatry is because when I was in college, I struggled with depression. Okay, how'd you get out? Oh, he says, one of the keys was to use the living, active Word of God. He pointed to this verse. He said, I took little cards and I'd write verses on them and I'd memorize them so I could take it out. It'd be in my memory anytime I want. I could think things through. It walked me right out of things. It changed my thinking, changed my feelings, changed my attitudes. He says, so I do that for patients now. You do? I thought you were a psychiatrist. You believe in counseling. He says, yeah, absolutely. But the Bible says it's living and active. I might need counseling. I might need to talk through issues from the past, but I need to implant in my cranium, and hopefully it'll work down into my heart and out into my practice and into my life, the Word of God. It's living. It's active. It's great medication. <laughs> this is a psychiatrist. You know, he writes prescriptions for people on antidepressants. He's going, yeah, yeah, they're, they're good. But you got to have the Word. It's powerful. It changes things claims it of itself, and he says, I've just seen it do it. I've seen it do it in so many lives and in my own. Have you ever thought of it like that? There's another passage in Hebrews. It reads like this. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, he's rebuking them, you need someone to teach you. Again, the basic principles of the oracles of God, the Bible. You need milk, not solid food, for yeah, that's it. Quickly. <laughs> For everyone who, who lives on milk is unskilled. Notice that word. Underline that. Unskilled in the words of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Did you follow the thinking there? He's saying, okay, you guys should be moving on to solid food, but you still have to take the milk because you haven't spent much time in eating what you need to eat. You're like a baby that never progressed onto solid food. You're still doing breastfeeding. It's like, come on, you got to grow up. And he said, what's the problem? You're unskilled. Do you ever feel that way? Unskilled in living your life. Unskilled in getting through the problems. Unskilled. Everything seems uphill all the time. Maybe you're not eating very good. Spiritually speaking, you're a wimp. Because <laughs> you don't eat very good. You don't eat the Word. You're not feeding on the Word. You don't have that nourishment. You're unskilled. Check your intake. Are you feeding yourself the Word of God? You're going to need it, and not just on Sundays. You're going to need it every day of the week. Let's go back to the analogy of the food table again. Oh, you know, before we do, it's like I put it down here. You've got to ingest and you have to digest. That's the way you do it. There's the ingesting of the Word of God, which is the hearing it. Maybe me, maybe a radio preacher, maybe reading it in a book, maybe reading it in the Bible, maybe memorizing it, or hearing a lesson taught on it, or you're studying to try and teach on it yourself. All those things are ingesting, but there has to be a digesting process, a place of bringing it in and, and, and letting it go down. Because isn't this how it works? Food comes into your mouth, you taste it, then it goes down your throat into your storage category, your stomach. Did you know yet you have not really gotten any nutrition out of it? That's why doctors say, you live from your gut. When it going through all the intestines is where the nutrition of it goes into your body. Without enough food, we all know you go into malnutrition. 
There's a lot of people in this world walking around really weak and sickly spiritually because they just aren't getting the nutrition they need. You need the word. The human heart needs it. Like those World War II pictures of prison camps, a lot of people seem to be just down and out. Did you know that over 16 million people a year are diagnosed as depressed? Many end up in suicide, in clinics. Those are clinical depression people, not just you and me being sad. We go through depression too, right? What you're going to need is some of the Word of God to pull you out. That's what the Scripture teaches. I remember when I was just a baby Christian, and I started reading my Bible for the first time. I'd never done that before, and I'm loving the Gospels, and the book of Acts was so exciting. But for some reason, when I got to Romans and Galatians and First and Second Corinthians and Ephesians, oh, it was like candy to me. I just couldn't believe it. And I remember one time, a few years later, in our, in our um, neighborhood we live now, there was this lawyer, Barry Shaw, who was, you know, a very successful lawyer with a big firm in Philly, had a house here on the East Coast, a house on the West Coast. He'd been very successful. He's the mayor of the township, and he had discovered, he was a Jew, and he had discovered the New Testament, and he started reading the Apostle Paul, and he, he said the exact same thing. He says, oh, Marty, I get up at five in the morning to study Ephesians. I get up at five in the morning to study Romans. It's like candy, man. I love this stuff. I, got, I want to study for a couple hours before I go to work. I'm like, this guy gets it. He's going to be fine. He's fueling himself. He was like a starving man in a wilderness, finds, finds an oasis. He's like, oh, man, this is so good. It's what I needed. He had quit Judaism and gone into the whole New Age movement. He had a bookshelf just long. He said, I read all those books. I didn't find any answer. In other words, they're all dead. But then when I got to the New Testament, man, it was like alive. This is what I'm looking for. Exactly. You too. Listen. I wanted to read to you something from a pastor and scholar. His name is John Piper. He kind of ties it all together. Listen to how John says this. Ready? I'll go quick because I'm already running out of time. Faith feeds on the Word of God. Without a steady diet, it gets weaker and weaker. If you are dissatisfied with your Christian courage and strength and joy and purity of heart, well, check the way you're feeding your faith. Compare the way you eat. Suppose that you start the day with a glass of orange juice. It's good, and it's good for you. It takes you about five minutes to drink it if you drink it while you're reading the newspaper or something like that. Then you go off to work or school, and you, let's say you don't eat anything all day until the next morning when you have another glass of orange juice. And you go like that for several days until you drop. Because man does not live on orange juice alone, right? Uh, it's not going to do it for you. Well, that's the way a lot of Christians try to survive as believers. They feed their faith with five minutes of food in the morning or evening, and, and then they don't eat again until 24 hours later. Some even skip two or three mornings and don't have anything for their faith to feed on. Now, the effect of starving your faith is that your faith starves. Not hard to understand. And that faith is starving, it's getting weaker and weaker, not able to do much anymore, has a hard time trusting God, hard time worshiping God, hard time rejoicing in God, and it easily falls to temptation. Why? Because it's not very strong, it's weak. It grasps and it stumbles. It's, it simply stands to reason that faith feeds on the Word because the Word is what faith trusts. 
and where trustworthy words are not present, faith has nothing to bite into. That's the nature of faith. It exists by what it trusts. It has no life but what it gets from the truth it believes. So, if we do not feed it with a substantial diet of life-giving truth, it will not survive. All this means that we should memorize Scripture day by day so that we can feed our faith hourly with, throughout the day. Only a few people have the luxury of being able to open their Bible every hour or so, but all of us can consult our memory if we have the Bible in our memory. So, with all my heart, here's what he's saying, I encourage you to do this. When you have your devotions in the morning, or when you hear a sermon on the weekends, or when you read the scriptures at all, could you just take a little morsel of it out and store it away, memorize it? This is like putting faith in the pantry of your mind. Then, throughout the day, you reach in and you take a bite of that morsel. It might be as simple as this, like Hebrews 13, 5. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, promises the Lord. Well, take that out and chew on it just for a little while during the day. Your nutrition will feed your faith. Your faith will grow, and it'll grow strong. And you'll pray for fruit, and it will come. Thirdly, the Bible gives us a diet of truth. It's not just inspirational words like it says in Hebrew, excuse me, Psalm chapter 18, verse 30. It reads like this. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. It is a shield for all those who take refuge in it. Or this one, Psalm 33, 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, or true is another translation. And all his work is done in faithfulness. Have you ever read Psalm 119? It's 176 verses in this one psalm. That's the longest one in the Bible. And it's trying to tell us about the word, the word. It's all about the word. All these things are trying to tell us this is the truth that you need. It's like the diet you need to be on, a diet of truth. The point is this. You and I are... Um, Easily tempted, easily led astray, easily falling into falsehood and deception and dishonesty if we don't have a diet of truth coming into our head, into our heart, into our mind. Jesus must have believed the Bible was extremely accurate, for in his Sermon on the Mount, he said this, Matthew 5, 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, that hasn't happened yet, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, you really don't get the significance of that until you understand what iota and dot mean. So let's put the Hebrew alphabet on the I don't know if you know in Hebrew, you read the opposite direction we do. We, we read this way, it reads the other way. So it starts over alphabet, uh, you know, gimel, dalet, hey, vav, zion, hate, you know, it goes right on through the alphabet. And he's talking about two letters in the Hebrew alphabet when he said jot and tittle. He's saying yod, which is the smallest letter, the one on that side, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and then he says, Dalit. Well, he's talking about R-D, which was Dalit is, or Resh, which is like our R. Notice the difference between the Dalit and the Resh. How, what's the difference? One just goes up and curves. The other one goes up, it's got a little elbow, it's a little part that sticks out. Jesus is saying, not one of the smallest letters in the Hebrew alphabet, or the one that distinguishes the little part, the little thing, the elbow thing that sticks out between the Resh and the Dalit, none of that. He's saying, I'm telling you, every little part of it's going to be fulfilled. 
So obviously, Jesus believed it was like inerrant. Jesus believed it was like perfect. You could count on even the smallest letter. It's not generally the word or most of the time true. No, no, every single part of a letter, even the smallest letter, everything will be filled completely accurate until I come again, until the heaven and earth pass away. Wow, he believed that? Yeah, I'm challenging you to believe that. Do you think you need it? Oh my gosh, do you need it? Every detail you can count on, every detail you can count on. That's what Jesus believed. Do you believe that? That's the challenge to us. If the Bible is food, like we're trying to say here, you need to get a good, healthy, balanced diet. My mother was a dietitian. She wrote diets for people in hospitals and in um, nursing homes and stuff like that for most of her career. And um, so she taught me how to eat vegetables and how to eat fruit and how to enjoy things. She's like, you know, yeah, I, I was forced. To, I couldn't leave the table until I ate. You know, I don't know if you do that with your kids. I don't know if people do that anymore. Or not, but I'm glad she did because I learned to like a lot of vegetables I probably wouldn't eat today. And I've learned to be able to have a more balanced diet. Hey, talking about this, let me ask you a question. You all know, I mean, eating too much of one food or nothing of some other foods can make you pretty unhealthy, right? Like going to McDonald's all the time, not so good. Is it possible to get too much Bible? My surprising answer to you is yes, it can be. Let me explain. I've seen this before in people's lives. I've seen it in seminary. The Bible refers to Pharisees being like this. Remember I said there's two parts, you need to ingest and you need to digest. What if I eat a whole bunch of food, so much that my intestines can't even digest it all? What happens? My belly gets bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And pretty soon my belly says, hey, they can't, the intestines can't handle this. Turn it into fat, turn it into fat, right? Because I've taken in too much that I haven't digested. People do that sometimes with the Bible. They just want to learn more and more and be able to have more and know more than anybody else needs to know, but they aren't digesting it. It still hasn't gone down into their heart, out into their practice. They're still hating the, the people that hate them. They're still being unkind. They're still being untruthful. They're still being, it's like, you see what I'm saying? When I say, yes, it's possible to get too much Bible. Well, in a sense, no, not if you'll digest it. But if you're just learning it, if you're just bringing it in, just eating it for the taste, but you don't do anything with it in your life, yeah, you're like a fat boy. And people go, oh, those Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of fat boys. Yeah, they're right, they are. They're not digesting it. The Bible is like food. You're supposed to eat it, and it's supposed to bring nutrition to your body and your life, just like food does. Well, that's what you need to do. You need to ingest. This is why this church has all these small groups. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Sometimes they need the help of a brother or sister to say, oh, yeah, well, do you really mean that, or what does that look like? Well, let me tell you what happened in my life. And it helps you digest it. Oh, that's so needed. That's why we have many churches and, and men's groups and women's groups and teen groups and children's. We want people to learn to digest this, and sometimes you need help. So we need the Word, but we need to digest it. I see I'm out of time, so let me read to you something out of this book, Taste and See, from that passage, Taste and See, the Lord is Good. John Piper shares with us his typical morning and what happens. 
KSJN plays softly on my clock radio. Click. I turn it off in three seconds. It's 6 a.m. I want Noelle, my wife, to sleep until 6.30. So I slip out from under the sheets and the quilt, and I tuck them in around her again. God, I'm tired. Help me. I'm hardly awake. I can hardly move. It seems like my eyelids are paralyzed. My blue energy boot slippers and terry cloth robe are in their usual spot on the floor by the bed. I could find them in my sleep if I had to. I'm sitting on the edge of the bed. Maybe I should go back to bed. Noel can get the boys off to school. No, I better go. And I'm tired. Lord, help me. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles, and they will run and not be weary. Isaiah 40, verse 31 comes to my mind. The slippers and the robe are on my body by now, and, and the night light in the bathroom spills out into the hall. I creep by the open door of the boys' room on the way to the basement. God, thank you for my sons. Oh, how I love my boys. Wake them up in righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. The basement has no heat, but one room is finished and has a carpet and a sofa and a desk. Click. I turn the, the three-way lamp on low. It is 6.05. The Bible's open on the couch from the day before. There's an orange pillow for, for, for my elbows. I throw the brown sweater Noel made me over my head like a, like a monk's habit to keep the draft from the window from hitting me in the head, and I begin, God, I'm tired. Help me. Please open my eyes so I can see the wonders of your word, like the Bible says. Oh God, mighty God, maker of heaven and earth and all the galaxies of the universe, that you should lend your ear to me in this little room half awake, that you should occupy yourself with, with me while millions of other people are praying, and all the while you hold New York City and Tokyo and Paris in the palm of your hand, that you should call this temple of flesh the temple of the Holy Spirit that I live in? That you speak to me from this page as personally and powerfully as though you were sitting on the couch next to me talking to me? Oh God, what condescension, what unalterable mercy to lend to a little ant like me. Help me believe, oh God, and feel this truth that all my hairs are numbered by you. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. First, I shall again praise him, my help and my strength, my God. Psalm 42. I meditate on Mark today and try to see the inner meaning of the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. I think it must be, it must mean something to me today. It must mean that, that Jesus is the all-sufficient one. He will feed me if I will come to him. Little is much in his hands, just like the boy only had a, a little lunch and it turned into this food for thousands. You can never get so much that you have nothing left over from the Lord. It's the food of your soul, the, the Bible. The grandfather clock finally sounds half of the Westminster chime. Oh, it's 6.30. My heart is full. My eyes are open. My faith is alive because I've fed on the Word of God. My joy is warm. My conscience is still. And my hope is strong. Now I'm ready to go upstairs and wake everybody up. For me and the Lord are like one.
Let's pray. Lord, I don't know if the people in this room do this kind of practice like I do or John Piper does. Get up in the morning and open the Bible and read it. Or go to bed at night and read the Bible. Or during the day have it memorized in their head so boom, a verse comes. Boom, another one comes out. When we rush into problems or facing, may, they, may these people right here, Lord, grow up to be like those people I meet 20, 30 years later. Boy, you can tell by looking at their face. You can see the glint in their eyes. You can hear it in the words they speak. Boy, they have been growing and learning and feeding. There's an emotional stability and health. There's a spiritual aliveness. There's an intellectual. Oh, Lord, it's beautiful. Bless them. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us and teach us and guide us and lead us by the power of your Holy Spirit to get into the Bible and to learn the Word of God. That's my prayer. Maybe God brought you to this service to teach you some things today or to get you to make a challenge, to take on the challenge of reading the Word, studying the Word maybe even memorizing it so you got it in your cranium it's in your little pantry anytime you need it I want you to just listen to this song these guys are going to just sing this for us you don't even need to sing meditate, maybe you want to keep your eyes closed talk to the Lord, what's he telling you about him his word and you